0: Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, patient advocate Donna Crier, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Hi, this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of the Surfing the Nishunami podcast, and welcome to our year-end review. Based on listener requests, we are releasing each of our eight year-end interviews as what we call an extrasode, a 20 to 25-minute piece covering a single topic. This extrasode is with me, and I will discuss the law of unintended consequences and how things that set this year topsy-turvy might have set them in directions different than what folks anticipated. Questioners include Louise Campbell and Stephen Harrison and we begin. With that, let's shift to the second half of this, which is mine. As you all know, you both know, and people who listen know, I'm a big fan of dynamic systems theory. And I think 2020 in fatty liver disease has been a rather interesting example of several things that lie around all these ideas of dynamic systems and complexity and chaos. Well, let me start at Nashtag in 2019, when I I first became really acquainted with the fatty liver community. And basically, people were trying to figure out how to get better biopsy scores for drugs. And then I'll go forward a year, a little more on on the disease, but most compellingly, a paper that Stephen presented on the inter and intra-reader reliability issues surrounding biopsy. And coupled with the idea that we were starting to see more papers on MRI-PDFF and that we had some non-invasive tests coming to market, you could see the beginnings of a momentum even before you get to omics to think differently about how you test and evaluate. One of the comments I made in 2019 was that it seemed to me that Nash was a horribly imprecise definition. I mean, I remember 50 years ago, Nixon announced we were going to end the war on cancer. and that started with the presumption that there was something called cancer and there was some way to deal with it. And uh, then it turned out that different cancers were different. And there was something called breast cancer, for example. But then it turned out there were six things called breast cancer. And over time, the complexity of the human body overwhelmed the simple definitions that people started with. Here, all you had to do was take a look at the idea that you could get lean NASH, overweight NASH, and obese NASH, and they didn't seem to be the same thing. I was saying this to Stephen when we first met, that that immediately struck me as the idea there was no such thing as NASH or no one thing called NASH. Or Mish. I don't care what you call it, there wasn't one of them. What's interesting is that healthcare markets invest in pursuit of drugs, because drugs are what drive changes in markets, and there was a generalized belief that 2020 would be the year that drugs came to market, at least one drug. People were pretty confident about OCA, people were shaky about LFibrenor, but pretty confident about OCA. And a lot of Investment Horizon money, not only in terms of more drugs, but in terms of diagnostics to be there when there was a drug on the market, and education, all that money got spent in the belief 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 that this market was going to be ready in 2020. And when Oka got its CRL, when Intercept received the CRL, there was a rather immediate panic that all the investment money would dry up and that that would slow the path of knowledge. But what I believe we've observed is that there was so much momentum around the idea that there was going to be a drug that the spending done around that and the conclusions and the lessons that it gave us have continued. We know a lot more now, and conversations resulting from a variety of things, including Stephen's paper, have led um The agencies, specifically FDA, to go back to the question of is biopsy the right way to proceed. At the same time that that's going on, armed with the knowledge that you need non-invasive testing if this is ever going to go into the population, people who are doing drug development started looking at more things beyond testing, and the people who are doing diagnostic development up their investments. So we get this positive momentum of knowledge, and we get people investing in omics and things that are downstream, based to some degree, I think, on a belief as to when the market was going to have drugs in it, and as a result, that explosion was going to take off. And what we wind up having this year is this real explosion of knowledge, very, very exciting stuff, and no drug yet, which isn't usually how it works. But it might be better, because the other thing that drugs do is the first drug that launches spends the money educating physicians on the disease that they're able to treat, which may not be the best definition of the disease. And I think there's an argument that goes that that would have been true for Oka. The more knowledge we develop before we have to lock in on what the drugs are supposed to do, I think the better shape the market takes. So one way to look at the last 18 months is a lot of twists and turns, but in the end, a broader, deeper more objective knowledge base about what the diseases that collectively constitute NASH, Mash or whatever you want to call it are. And as long as funds continue to be available and good drugs are still being developed and that's the way it feels from here, that's probably a pretty good outcome for everybody except and Louise, I can't ignore this and Donna would jump on me if she were here, patients who were looking for hope and who were looking for therapies they needed. So knowledge does better. Maybe the patients don't do as well. But I don't think it's the dynamic anybody would have predicted at the beginning of the year. I just find it fascinating and in fact optimistic and encouraging in many ways with the caveat about the
1: patients. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. That's a very thoughtful summary of where we were and have come in 2020. And as we begin to turn the page to 2021, how interesting the parallels between what we just talked about with the confusion around nomenclature and the parallel confusion around drug development. And I think the same rules apply, right? What what we've seen is a very careful analytical evaluation by the FDA and the FDA said it's not enough. The placebo adjusted response rate of 11% with the risk profile that the drug presents is, as it currently stands, not enough to get approval. They didn't say won't get approval. They just said, let's put some more thought into this. And that's what's happened across the board. And as we realize that drugs that target specific inflammatory processes while working in an animal model appear to be redundant, in humans and don't work as well as a result of that and maybe the same thing with fibrosis. What we've learned is to be smarter about the pathways that we target and I think that's what we see with the second wave of drugs and I use second in a, in a very broad term because these newer generation FXRs potentially uh, while still having some of the positive effects, are able to mitigate some of the negative effects. There was a press release by Medicrin that, that just came out looking at their second-generation FXR uh, that, uh, that I think is informative. The FGF 21s are not all created equal. We know that if you have balanced potency between uh, FGF 1, 2, and 3C, that you know, you're likely to have a differential impact underlying liver disease. We're seeing work now where Companies are taking the different enantiomers of a compound and isolating the enantiomer that is actually having the positive effect and minimizing the enantiomer that is associated with adverse events. We've seen that with poxel We saw uh, Sirius try to do that with their MSDC-0602K, where they're trying to get away from direct activation of PPAR-gamma like piaglitazone by modulating the mitochondrial pyruvate carrier complex. And in so doing that, can we accentuate the positive impact of activation of the nuclear hormone receptor PPAR, but not carry the AE profile? So, all this is slowly marching forward. And interestingly, to your comment, Roger, it will benefit the patient so much more in the long run rather than just rushing a drug to the front lines. That that's the same concept that's been raised with the vaccinations for COVID-19. Let's don't let's don't short circuit the process. Let's don't take shortcuts. Let's efficiently and effectively using good science and all the rules and boundaries that exist within development of a vaccine. Let's just do it, but do it with the collaboration of all so that we can cut the red tape, we can limit bureaucracy and we can achieve success in as little as 10 months, which is what we see happening with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccination. And I think that same thought process is beginning to be applied to fatty liver disease, where we're not just rushing into this thing, but we're trying to deliberately look at all of the blind spots and develop drugs that are not only going to function on improving liver disease, but have pleiotrophic effects on the whole metabolic milieu of dysfunction that exists in these people so that we impact not only liver health, but cardiovascular health and malignancy prevention and all the things that kill these people. We've made huge advances in 2020 despite all the pandemic issues that we've been faced with. Has it been easy? No, it hasn't. It's been a great challenge, but as a community, we've risen to that challenge and I'm excited to see where we go in 2021 as a result of that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. You know, the funny thing is a lot of the processes that you were describing usually happen in a drug market after agents come. So people start looking for enantiomers an for example, after the first molecule in the class gets into the market and it's sloppy and it's it's messy, but it gets approved. Then people start figuring out how to, you know, what do I do to this to make it more positive, less negative? What's interesting here is all that's going on based on failures, not successes. And I think that is interesting. I think to some degree it has to do with the idea, that, as I say, that people thought that Oka would get approved and that would jump the market. And that would mean that there was more money coming faster. I do agree with you that it's probably better for the patient in the long run, as long as the patient can manage her or his liver long enough to get there. But this becomes a different dynamic, an exciting dynamic for that reason. And you're right, what's happened in the last this year has just been rather remarkable. I
2: think as a sense of following the ochre sort of setback, I think patient groups and patients are speaking up, they're trying to get involved a little bit more. Nothing without us, um, nothing about us, without us. Um, But I also think the new waves of drugs that are coming, that target, as Stephen and everybody allude to, is the cardiovascular side, the um, diabetes, and the other metabolic components. A lot of these patients and people, not only do their physicians not look for the liver component in that patient, even when they've had their first MI or their stroke or they've developed type 2 diabetes. But if we can get a drug that targets those diseases and targets the liver disease underneath, whether it's noted or not, there has to be a benefit. And with non-communicable diseases now making 7 out of 10 of the top biggest killers in the world, if you have a multi Affect medication that affects certainly the biggest three or four of those killers outside smoking, then that itself is a potential massive win, not only for patients, but for low and middle income countries who are the biggest adversely affected populations and indigenous populations in these diseases. So the potential long term win for multimorbidity management, I suppose, and conditions may well have started to really be visualized. I suppose, this year. And that's very exciting. I
0: agree. I, I also wonder if it isn't a little complicated. I think about semaglutide showing significant impact on steatosis and nothing on fibrosis. And you would think that the that the GLP-1s, in particular semaglutide, would be exactly the kind of agent you just described. But, and Stephen, I'll ask you this question. If it doesn't affect fibrosis, what does that tell us about its role in an integrated multi-metabolic syndrome process?
1: If it does nothing on fibrosis, I think it makes me rethink the whole paradigm of improving fat in the liver and the liver then healing itself. And I want to be very careful that we don't make that leap just yet. If we go back and look at the data, there was only mid-50s patients in each study group three or four patients in each group would swing that to a positive impact on fibrosis the other thing to consider is artificial intelligence fully quantitative assessment of collagen has not been applied to that data set yet and we've seen every case where ai was applied and fully quantitative assessment of collagen was done that the actual impact of drug was accentuated in every case. So I'm unwilling at this point to change my paradigm of thinking, which is if I take away the insult to the liver that's causing all of the inflammatory cascade and activation of cellate cells, that the liver will get better. I'm not willing to shift off of that yet because in hep C, if I cure it, if I suppress B, if I quit drinking alcohol, if I treat the autoimmune, every single time the liver gets better. So either fat's not the issue or We haven't evaluated this study set well enough to really know what's happening to fibrosis, and I think it's the latter.
0: So I'm hoping it's the latter, because if it's the former, then all this gets a lot more complicated again, right? I think we'd all hope for the latter to be true, that better analysis would demonstrate that the paradigm holds.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We just need to, I suppose, get more people cured and or prevented. You know, I'm more about liver health now. In the context that if, if we teach them to look after their liver or even know where it is, then um, we can move forward. And and we need both. We need the the drugs and the world to be able to cure and locate. And we need people to actually not get themselves there either deliberately or by accident. I suppose if this is not a tsunami, it, it it's well, it's bigger than a tsunami with the figures that are forecast over the next few years in children and adolescents. It's something we have to do something about. For me, we're not going to address non-communicable diseases if we ignore the liver. It's a vital component of that. And Any of these medications, even if you were to target cardiovascular disease, and I agree with Stephen, I, um, I think if you remove liver fat, we will see the liver eventually start to heal itself if we don't put another insult on it. So it's an amazing organ, that's all I can say.
0: Yeah, it is. I think we agree. So Stephen, do you have anything you want to add or I'll just put a bow on on this and then we can go on. I think less is more.
1: So I'm going to let you wrap it up.
2: Can I make one more comment that you may or may not choose to use? But actually, 2020 is the international year of the nurse. And obviously it was due to the birth of Florence Nightingale, who set up modern nursing and she was a statistician, as we know, and in fact she was the first woman accepted into the Royal College of Statisticians. I'd like to give a great shout out to all of the liver nurses and physicians who've been moved out of hepatology to support the COVID outbreak and really step right up and be counted in the international year of the nurse. The nurses and doctors have been absolutely key throughout the world. So big thank you to everybody.
0: I I couldn't agree more.
1: Well stated.
0: And I think we're going to let that be the wrap-up note on this conversation, even though it isn't what the conversation was about. It's been a remarkable year. I think Stephen did make the point, which I agree with, that if you knew at the beginning of the year that you were going to have COVID and you were going to have OCO not get approved and a couple of other things, you would not have expected this much optimism around this disease at the end of the year. But I think, Louise, as, as, as uh, Mason did in his conversation also, we need to put all that optimism in the context of everything else this year has been. And yes, nurses and doctors have been fantastic. They, they've been heroes. I was saying, I think, Stephen, on one of the conversations you weren't on yesterday, I was reading that there's a tremendous uptick in medical school enrollment because just like after 9-11, more people wanted to join the military because they knew what they wanted to fight. More students now want to go to med school because they want to be on the front lines for the next pandemic and, and, and nursing school as well. And I think that speaks to how inspiring the doctors and nurses around the world have been in the face of all this horror. Yeah, I agree. It's amazing. All right. let me With that, let me go on. I'm going to start putting fronts and the ends on all of this. This ends our episode with me, Roger Green. If you find this concept valuable, please let us know. And with that, enjoy your vacation and stay safe. See you in 2021 on the podcast.